All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. Is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self, the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. They don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Josh Clark, and you're listening to Powerful with Jeff Couliard. Our guest today has a passion for building and maintaining innovative and resilient organizations that make a positive social impact in the community, be they churches or nonprofits, political organizations, or professional associations. He's the CEO and pastor of First Lutheran Church in Calgary, Alberta. He's the president of the Alberta Pastoral Care Association, and he's the co-president of a startup nonprofit organization called Hope and Safety for Refugees, uh, where their mission is to help people from all over the world who are fleeing dangerous and oppressive political environments starting a new life here in Canada. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kevin Powell. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Um, why don't we start with giving the listeners a bit of background? You are a Lutheran pastor in Calgary, Alberta. How long have you been um, a pastor and what brought you to that line of work? Well, I've been a pastor for 20 years. It was 20 years back in July. Um, before that, I was studying music and uh, I was going to be an orchestra conductor. And there's a lot of crossover between uh, music studies and theological studies. And uh, actually, I became a Lutheran through my musical studies. I was an Anglican before that. And uh, I was looking for a church with folks my own age. And uh, I was at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. And there wasn't really anything there. Then one day, I was uh, running across the campus late for my medieval music class. And there was a really good-looking woman sitting at the at a booth that said Lutheran Campus Ministry. So I said, um, this can wait, class can wait. So I'll stop inquire, but I knew who Martin Luther was because he's as much a, a musical figure as he is a church figure. Hey? And so I uh, stopped, got the information and got the girl's phone number. And um, yeah, a few years later, we were married. And uh, then uh, that's how we became a Lutheran, became a pastor because it uh, felt, like, um, felt like a logical extension from my music studies. Um, after five years of intense music studies, I needed something different. Went to seminary for a year. That turned into two. That turned into internship. That turned into thesis. And so um, it ended up as ordination. So uh, 20 years later, here I am. Wow. And what what brought you to Calgary or out west? Well, I was uh, my wife. My mentor, well, she's now my former spouse right now, but we were living in Halifax at the time as co-pastors. And uh, we got pregnant with our second child. She's from Edmonton. And uh, I got along better with her parents, and she got along better with mine. And so we moved to Lethbridge, and that's how we ended up in uh, in Alberta. Been moving around ever since. Okay, um, awesome. And let's just jump right into it. Let's let's talk about sure. let's talk about politics and governance in this country because uh, we've been through some recent elections, and so we had a federal election uh, most recently, and we had a provincial election here in Alberta uh, a few months ago. Um, the provincial election saw us move pretty hard right um, from where we were with the NDP government, which was a bit of an anomaly. Uh, if you've been in Alberta 
any length of time. You know, that is the anomaly in Alberta politics mm-hmm. was the, the four years of the NDP government. Um, there seems to me to be a, uh, an interesting polarization happening when it comes to to politics in general um and i'm curious as to your thoughts on that polarization and do you see it inside of your your faith community or do you see it how do you how do you understand this kind of polarized right versus left dynamic that has been developed i don't see it as a as a polarization of right versus left even though that's there what i think is the problem is um you talk about the use of power what i saw the provincial election all about was returning a sense of power mm-hmm. uh, not um i think the NDP election in 2015 was a real shock to the system for Alberta. And I identify that as being a real spiritual wound for a lot of people, especially here in Calgary, because that really messed with people's identity. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, first, the NDP were elected, and that was around the time oil and gas was starting to decline. And so everything was falling apart. And that just created a sense of anxiety and anger within um, certain sectors of the city and the province. Um, and what I see as the UCP election about was this isn't about, you know, let us get back on track, the deficits, blah, blah, blah. It was about let's return to a sense of normalcy of who we are. Mm. Let's return to the Conservative Party running things in the province, no matter what that looks like. Um, Back to a sense of power. We are in charge. We've always been in charge. It was 44 years uh, since the PC party had had first been elected. And uh, for a lot of people, that's their entire lifetime. And uh, when that's taken away, there's a sense of dis, uh, discombobulation that happens within people and um, they don't know how to react. And a lot of people reacted with extreme toxicity. And I think that's just gotten worse. The political climate in, in Alberta, uh, Calgary especially, has become really toxic. Uh, as um, that division you talk about inf- gets inflamed. Because mm-hmm. even when people win, conservative side wins, they still get angry. Mm-hmm. They're angry that there's an opposition. There's angry that there's someone opposing them. And so that creates a climate of uh, just real nastiness, which I think is um, counterproductive to a prosperous society. Yeah. And so what do you think some of the, I guess, action steps that we can be taking? Some, I'm all kind of about action. Like how do we bridge this divide? If it's not really about left and right at the end of the day, if it is more of an identity piece, um, how do we have some of those conversations? Because it seems like that those are the conversations we're not having. Like when I look at issues, but like addiction or mental health, which is mm-hmm. you know primarily about politics as well, it's like we're not actually talking about power. We're not actually talking about identity. And some of the people who are most angry about identity politics, or will be the first to call out identity politics, are those who <laughs> yes. identify strongest with um, mm-hmm. with oil and gas or with conservatism. Um, so, what are your what are your thoughts on on steps that we can maybe take as people who may feel ourselves a little bit caught in the middle. Cause I'll be honest, like that's kind of where I find myself. I look left and I look right and I'm like, well, there's gotta be something a bit more grounded in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a matter of actually having conversation no matter what they look like and keeping the conversation to areas of um, not just a, agreement, but areas of, uh, of common need or common interest. Uh, one thing we'll hear in my congregation at First Lutheran here in Calgary is that I am very much a political minority. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of oil and gas executives in my congregation, um, people who are very quite conservative and, and on many economic issues, but not social issues, interestingly enough. Our church has affirmed the changes in our denomination around LGBT rights, around the areas of ordination and marriage, and my congregation is fully behind that. But when you're talking about the economy and oil and gas, it's a whole different story. And that's when the polarization comes. But I found that many of these people who are 
very conservative, very oil and gas, very Jason Kenney and very Andrew Shear. Uh, these are the first ones to help out in our tax clinic ministry for low-income people. These are the people handing out food at in from the cold. Um, so there are ways to bridge that gap and to recognize the humanity in each other when it's happening in front of us and not just identify people by who they voted for or even identify ourselves by who we voted for. It's recognizing the humanity in others so they can recognize the humanity in me. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, I'm always talking about getting people to the underlying needs and values because there's a really high probability that we actually agree, you know, at that, mm-hmm. the, at that level of humanity. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing maybe your congregation, but more broadly, you know, zooming out a little bit from politics and, and recent events, but what keeps you up at night when you think about, when you worry about um, the people in, in your care um, or in your congregation, what are some of those things that kind of are top of mind for you? Well, in the religious community, faith communities, a big challenge is resources. Mm-hmm. But that's only the um, the symptom of a, of a larger cause. I think it's a big part of it is the shifting role of faith communities in, in our communities um, is a big one. Are, again, back to identity. Who are we? Especially when Christians used to be the most dominant religious force in uh, Canadian cultural society. And uh, we are not anymore. And on the one hand, that's a good thing. Because I think we were using our, our power not always for good. Mm-hmm. We had a sense of entitlement uh, within our um, our communities, within our culture. But now we're trying to figure out what's, what's next for us. Um, having challenges paying the bills, that just shows us that we're having trouble redefining who we are and finding what our mission is. The upside of that is that creates a tremendous sense of freedom and opportunity for innovation and possibility. And so one of the things I really appreciate about First Lutheran here is that I'm giving that, given that freedom and openness to explore vastly new ideas and the congregation welcomes it because I think they sense that we are in this place, this luminous space where we don't know what the next uh, few years are going to look like, but we can define that. We can discern what that is going to look like together. And it's not going to look like it used to be. It's going to look something fresh and new and, and actually quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems to me that, you know, I was born Lutheran and uh, raised Catholic, and now I'm not quite sure about all of it, uh, to be frank. Uh, but it seems like the Lutherans as a, as a group have been a bit more innovative or a bit more open to change well, maybe some, than other faith groups. And, and I'm sure that there's a spectrum. Um, well, there's also varying kind of Lutherans too. There's about four different denominations of Lutherans in Alberta. so it's uh, And uh, I belong to the most liberal one. So okay. it's, uh, you know. What do you think the role is of faith communities more broadly, you know, maybe the Lutherans, but recognizing that fact that we're living in a more and more secular society and questioning maybe some of these connections between churches and power. Um, And we seem to, you know, we don't have to look too far, look south of the border to see a really strong influence on American politics and the Republican Party um, from kind of very staunch conservative um, Christians. What do you what do you see the role of faith communities being in in society? That's a big question. But mm-hmm. well, right now we're we're discerning that. But I think right now what it looks like is uh, to be to model what a a kind, compassionate community can look like. Uh, people who disagree on a whole bunch of issues but still come together, you know, in grace and love and forgiveness and mercy. Um, to be those places of uh, of joy, of celebration. And even of community, since communities, the sense of community is being broken down. Mm-hmm. Um, people who actually come together once a week, you know, voluntarily, and sing together. Um, how often does that? Where else does that happen? Hey, and when you gather together like that, that that creates a sense of um, a bond between people. 
And uh, it's not always easy and we don't always get it right, but there's always a sense of um, we are here for a reason. And the people who come to First Lutheran are there for a reason, especially when we've, the congregation has gone through so much trouble around the area of LGBTQ rights when we decided to uh, move forward in that direction and losing a whole bunch of people. The can folks we, that are here. Can we hit the pause button on that and dig yep. in, dig into that experience a little bit? So being yep. a fairly liberal church, recognizing uh, rights for LGBT mm-hmm. folks, what, what happened in the congregation? So you mentioned people left. Um, okay. and I think one of your tweets um, recently was around, you know, some, some people refused to sit on committees and, you know, kind of like yep. some of that protest, internal protesting kind of happening. But what when you when you break that, and you might still be going through it, um, for all I know. Um, but what what kind of happened with that conversation? Within my congregation itself, this happened about uh, six months before I arrived. Okay. And uh, what my staff has been telling me is that uh, they went through a couple of years of of discernment, of learning, of um, of prayer and uh, conversation. And some people left even at that point. Hey, eh? they thought they, even just talking about it was just beyond them. And then they had the. Uh, lead up to the vote, which was more conversation and more, you know, what are we doing together? And then they had the vote, which in our polity means you have to have a two-thirds majority to uh, to pass this type of, um, this change. And they met that, that threshold. And what I'm told is that people who voted against it just got up that day and just left and never came back. And the people who stayed, uh, they felt the real sting of that. Um, these were long-term friendships. Um, long-term relationships that were suddenly just broken. And what I sensed from my congregation is that after this time, they just, there was a real intentionality about being at church. They've gone through this really difficult, painful process. So we are here, we're going to make sure that this church stays strong. Um, Even though they call themselves a shadow of their former self, but uh, one council member here on my church council says, yes, but we're actually kinder than we used to be which is, I think, a really positive step. Yeah. Denominationally, we are we lost, um, out of 130 churches, we lost about 30. So we're down to about uh, down to 100 folks, churches who left to, for other Lutheran denominations. And when that process was unfolding, it was awful. Um, clergy meetings, uh, people just shouting at each other, and um, people grandstanding at uh, conventions. And then the more conservative side said they're going to protest, they're going uh, by pulling out of committees and and all these other, but just not participating. And then getting angry that their voices aren't being heard. Uh, so it just felt like um, the whole that process was just a well. One one colleague calls it the troubles because <laughs> uh, once the dust settled, um, the folks who remained, it was uh, a lot more peaceful, uh, peaceful to be around. Our, our meetings were much more peaceful. Gatherings were much more enjoyable. Our conventions were better. Mm-hmm. We're actually moving ahead with, with, uh, with stuff. So um, I don't necessarily see the people, the churches leaving as being a bad thing. They had to do what they had to do and we're moving forward the way we need to, need to move forward. And so um, uh, the process was, was hard, but I think we're at a, at a good place, but there has been some financial fallout from that, of course, that we're mm-hmm. looking to, uh, to take care of. Yeah, it's interesting that 
kind of refusal to participate and then complaining about not having representation is very reminiscent of a, a recent federal election, right? <laughs> yes. Where we've got a bunch of Alberta separatists uh, making a lot of noise on social media anyway. I'm not sure um, how deep it actually runs, where there's just kind of a reactionary moment that we're going through right now. But mm-hmm. when you, you know, discard all of the governing folks in your in your election and you can't really complain about not having representation i think um it's an interesting parallel what do you think from a so a lot of the people who listen to this are leaders of of organizations whether you know education system is where i do a lot of my work uh in healthcare but also you know corporate leaders um from a leadership perspective what do you think are some of the most important traits for leading through a trouble and or like leading in turbulent times um you know either reminiscent of the, of the leadership that the church had going through um, that LGBTQ kind of um, discombobulation and, or right now uh, when people are leading in times of economic uncertainty and fear and identity um, concerns, what are some, I guess, tips or strategies or things that you think about from a leadership perspective? I think a big one is remaining calm. I don't think a leader has the luxury of getting angry or freaking out. Uh, we call that the non-anxious presence. I don't know if uh, that's part of your world as well. Because when I see our leaders just getting angry, lashing out at other leaders, I don't think that's helping. What I think leaders have to do is look for areas of of common ground. Uh, Also look at areas where things are working and not always pointing out where where bad things are happening. Look at, you know, where are people being successful? What parts of our sectors, what parts are growing? What can we nurture to uh, help that grow as well? This isn't to necessarily look, ignore the negative parts, but also focus on areas that are improving to make it give a sense of hope rather than, you know, despair that we're falling into this crevasse that's that's going to all suck us all in. Uh, Yeah, for a leader, it's uh, always to give a sense of, of hope and possibility and moving forward. And not to create more chaos and more tension. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of hope that a certain Alberta premier listens to this podcast. <laughs> it seems yeah, like yeah. there's a lot of rhetoric um, coming out of the the war room, or so it's called. Yes. Even just the fact that Alberta decided that you know we should spend thirty million dollars on a war room to fight our enemies, unseen, unknown yeah. enemies um, against the oil patch is, I guess, indicative yeah. of where we're as at. well as cutting H as well as um, uh, other programs that are sorely needed. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, like you say, that's, it seems like there isn't been, hasn't been a lot of conversation in this province about hopefulness um, recently. So what are you hopeful about? What, what's, what's something that's going well um, in your world or something that you look out into the broader community and you say, yeah, that's actually, we should be celebrating this. Mm-hmm. I look at uh, like the work we do here at the church. One of our keystone projects is um, uh, tax clinics for low-income people. We took this over from the public library about four years ago. And so this has grown from 12 uh, tax clinics uh, in a season to over over 40 per year. And uh, we've gone from 40 uh, volunteers to about 150. And so this is one area that's been that's been growing. Um, other areas that we're partnering with uh, the Med, um, what do you call it? Alzheimer's Society to reach out into rural areas for churches to become hubs for dementia care. And so providing that sort of service in underserviced areas. And when we bring those to the congregation, um, we get a lot of really positive uh, feedback, really positive reactions to it. Eh? And folks want to participate in something that's actually impacting people's lives. 
And so when we can show the impact and we can show how people can get involved, that creates a sense of hopefulness. And again, like having people from all across the political and social spectrum participating in these programs uh, towards a common goal, that creates a stronger sense of community as well and breaks down those barriers that people have uh, between each other. And one of the things I always ask my congregation and other people is, um, when we see a barrier between people, we ask who's benefiting from this barrier and who's being hurt by this barrier. And um, we'd have that conversation. Then people are actually able to see each other differently and be able to participate in their community in a much more robust way. And so um, that those are sorts of things that give me hope. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, finding a common good and seeing how you can contribute to that and then taking, you know, small action steps is, is a really important piece for generating hopefulness. Because sometimes when you look, it's like, it's easy to feel hopeless when you look at the scale or the size of, of, of issues. Well, also, I think one thing we can do is um, even, you know, kind of physician heal thyself sort of thing is uh, get off of Twitter. Um, <laughs> people have to, that whole thing, Twitter isn't real life. And it's so true. Yeah. Uh, you can get sucked into the drama of Twitter. Uh, and um, I think once people stop fighting online, that can create a sense of community as well. It's also a sense of, of hope because being online can create a real sense of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is part of this po- podcast project is to actually talk to people and see them face to face for sure. Um, what do you think, um, what would you like to see more of from, from the average, the average person knowing that the, the church, the significance of religion and church has been on the decline, at least in Western mm-hmm. societies for some time. What are some of the underlying values? Like I heard community as something kind of a strong benefit that we're, we're seeing a breakdown of community, generally speaking, you know, people, there's a documentary a while back, uh, Bowling Alone, I think was the, was yeah, the yeah. title, but you know, this generalized breakdown of family and community. Do you, do you put that as the, at the root cause of a lot of societal dysfunction? Or when you look at some of these things that we're wrestling with, what are some of the root causes that you think um, are at play here? Yeah, I think the breakdown of community is a big one. Uh, we don't know our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have as many friends as we once did. Our families are smaller. Uh, so that's a, that's a huge one. And another one is identifying ourselves as consumers rather than citizens. Uh, we identify ourselves by what we buy, what phone we use, are we a Mac or a PC, uh, rather than who we are in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. We define ourselves in relationship to our purchase goods. And I think that's, uh, I don't know if that's symptomatic or a cause or whatnot, but I think what faith communities can do is helping people remember their humanity. Uh, what I was telling my congregation is that which makes you holy also makes you human. That which makes you human also makes you holy. The two are inseparable. The more we engage our humanity, the more we deepen our humanity, the more we grow into the image of who God created us to be. And I think when we do that ex- exploration, that self-exploration in defining and discovering and rediscovering who God has created us to be, both as individuals and a community, we become more human and more compassionate, more engaged, more more loving and um, more service-oriented. And that creates uh, a broader ripple effect in one's life and in one's community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I tend to I tend to blame individualism, like really a hyper-individualistic yeah, yeah. kind of worldview that it seems to have permeated the West. And it's, you know, it's been a slow burn for a hundred years mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. for us to get to that place. Um, 
don't know if you're familiar with the work of Paul Bourne and the Tamarack oh, yeah. Institute. Yep. Yeah, yep. so yep. I, I remember a line of his from a conference I went to years ago that doesn't matter what the problem is, the answer is community. And that, hmm. one, that one's always stuck with me. And you know the yeah, health yeah. of your community if uh, when your neighbor's sick, you take them chicken soup, right? That's the most yeah. basic kind of actions. So what type of actions do you take to foster community, maybe in your own life, uh, outside of your leadership role in the church, but uh, or practical things that, that people can, can do to regain, I guess, some of that sense of community or connectedness in a world that seems to always be t- tugging at us to dislocate mm-hmm. and disconnect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple things. Uh, I'm involved in uh, a provincial political party um, and uh, make connections there. I met, met a lot of really good people there, uh, well outside <laughs> the church yeah. world. Hey? Yeah. And uh, that helps um, get me out of my church bubble. <laughs> uh, the other thing, and I often write about this on my social media, is that I got a local pub I hang out at. And uh, I get to know the, uh, you know, both the staff and other regulars and stuff. And um, again, that's way outside the church community. And I always have very interesting uh, either conversations or experiences that I document on my social media platforms. Um, and for an introvert, I always spend a lot of time by myself. But uh, when I uh, do engage um, in broader community initiatives, such as, you know, hanging out at the bar, involved in, the, in politics, um, as well as getting involved with other um, communities of practice here in town, of other leaders and such, uh, that are outside of my church world. It, uh, I find that helps me grow in as a person in community, not as a person isolated either within my own personal silo or within the bubble of the church. Because one thing I, I try to do is make sure I stay out of that bubble because it's so easy and so comfortable, but I also find myself getting soft and lazy. <laughs> um, I also find the vibrancy of uh, being challenged uh from people outside of my church bubble really helps me to grow into both my job and, and my identity as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what are you being most challenged by these days or what's, what's your area of growth? What are you, what are you growing into? Big part is being a political minority. <laughs> um, been living here for the better part of what, since 2003. And it seems, um, that's been an ongoing challenge, ongoing source of growth. Um, uh, learning to relate to people who have diametrically opposed views of how the world should work than I do Mm -hmm. and still finding the humanity in them and trying to foster community and relationship with them. Um, We talk about community, but community is actually really hard. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it means putting away one's ego needs and putting away one's personal agenda in order to see the other as they are and to see the humanity in the other person. And so community can sound like a lovely buzzword, but when in actual practice, it's really hard to maintain. But uh, I think the benefits of it outweigh the challenges. Yeah, and how do you do that? How do you set aside kind of your your politics or your ego, um, or I imagine even sometimes some church doctrine um, or some things that are your perspective that might be getting in the way, might be the block to meaningfully connecting with somebody. Do you have any tips for us because to be honest like i think we all struggle with that i think that yeah, we all yeah. are, are working through that i think it's a conscious choice for me i, ha- I have to make that conscious choice mm-hmm. when i look across the table with someone who's you know views make me crazy um it's it's like saying okay i'm not going to allow this person to <laughs> diminish what i believe uh, in terms of how people should inter uh, interrelate mm-hmm. um how we have those conversations around uh not just the content, but the actual language we use uh, that are um, that are more life-giving, more helpful, more um, 
oriented towards community, towards understanding, as opposed to just putting up that wall mentally or whatnot. And this making the conscious choice to see that person as a beloved human, as a beloved child of God, who is just as beloved as I am, as anyone else is. And I cannot judge that person for believing differently. This week, my job is to relate to that person as I'm called to relate to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, that piece around judgment, you know, I'm always, I'm always on the lookout for violence because violence is power gone wrong, like power misused yeah, yeah. gets experienced as, as violence. And I think that judgment, implicit, explicit judgment is the subtlest form and most often form of violence. And it's, it's embedded in our language. Um, and so the work of Marshall Rosenberg, uh, compassionate communication is really around nonviolent communication. How can we relate at the level of humanity without portraying or projecting our judgment on people or having them experience themselves as being judged, I think is a really useful. It's been useful for me um, because when working with people with addictions issues or substance use issues, all they get is judgment all day long mm-hmm. from yeah, yeah. everybody, from healthcare practitioners to parents to the police. Um, mm-hmm. And so that experience of true non-judgment can be transformative for, for people when they're, when they're mm-hmm. fully yeah. seen. Yeah, we see that with our tax clinic um, clients as well. A lot of them are afraid to uh, bring their taxes in because they're afraid that um, the person doing the tax will judge them on their, how they're spending their money. And our job is, no, you, we want to get your tax file so you can get the benefits that you're entitled to and uh, and try to remove that barrier of shame and judgment because money is a really loaded mm-hmm. um, topic, a really morally loaded topic that induces a lot of shame and judgment that people experience. Yeah. So, yeah. How do you think about, because I sometimes get asked about judgments from, especially from leaders whose job is often to appraise performance and to pass judgment on on people. Um, and I always try and differentiate between kind of moralistic judgment, where it's loaded up with shame that they're a bad person versus values-based judgment, which is this is important and or this is the standard and we're not meeting that standard, but you're a good person. Like different, like distinguishing between behavior and, and the person is how I think about um, judgment. But can you talk a little bit about that kind of moralistic versus value-based versus performance? Like, cause it, it's a really tricky area for people, I think, to know what, when they're being judgmental and what they're being mm-hmm. judgmental on. Right. Is that yeah, sense? Yeah. Well, the question is, what are you judging? Are you judging um, the person's work? Or are you judging the person's human value? Yeah. Um, we, uh, as, as people, as individuals, we attach ourselves to our work, but I think also us as leaders is to recognize when we're judging someone's value as a person over against, you know, the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, if the work is subpar, if they're not meeting the standards, uh, recognizing that here's how you can improve versus here's where you've gone wrong. Because um, the shame-based stuff around um, evaluation is still very real, still very can be very raw for a lot of people. And I have a staff here I have to evaluate uh, once a year. And what that ends up being is having a conversation rather than a formal appraisal. Uh, ask them how they th- feel things are going, and then when I think there's something that isn't as good, isn't as strong as it could, just talk about that as um, how can we improve? Um, here's what I'm expecting. How can we get to that that place? As opposed to you haven't gotten there. Mm-hmm. It's like how can we get there uh, together? Um, very much a, a team orientation. Yeah, maybe that's what's missing at the bigger bigger picture level is that. Mm-hmm kind of team orientation that we're that acknowledgement that we're actually in it together, regardless of your political stripes, we're, we're sharing space together and we're sharing 
community together and you know a bit more of a focus on what we can improve together as opposed to what's broken or Mm -hmm. or what's wrong Uh, so what would you like to see improved in in this community that we're that we're a part of this maybe alberta community geographically or western kind of society if you had to pick out two or three um things i I think community like redeveloping community and reconnecting in communities would would be one that stands out for me from our conversation but is there something else um you mentioned social media and the the Mm -hmm. the toxic kind of polarizing nature that that can become Um, but do you have any any thoughts on on areas of specific focus that we would do well um to, to think about I think listening to each other rather than talking at each other, I think is a big one. Uh, I think the whole Western alienation thing comes from people both not feel listened to and people talking at each other um, as opposed to people entering into genuine conversation and, and community. Um, that's a big one uh, within our own, um, within Calgary community and Alberta too, is to get off the notion that we are, uh, we are defined by our economic status or economic needs or economic goals, as opposed to recognizing that uh, success comes in various forms. Um, a life worth living comes in various forms, comes from you know service and come, yeah, as well as it comes from oil and gas. Um, I think for, for Alberta, a big one is looking at um, ourselves as, as a province that's not so centered on uh, prosperity that's more centered on uh, caring for each other and the two aren't mutually exclusive one can be prosperous and caring at the same time but the way the conversation has been unrolling is that uh, we have to choose mm-hmm. um, and with the budget that came down it seemed to look like uh, the government has made a choice about that mm-hmm. and I think that's going to create problems and just inflame an already toxic environment uh, my worry is, is that uh, um, it'll create more, um, I don't want to say social chaos, but more inflamed division, where I think we should be going in the opposite direction. I'd really like to see the premier talk more conciliatory about people who are low income, people who are struggling to um, pay the bills, people who are economically disadvantaged, and people who are, who are living with uh, mental or physical illness, um, rather than always talking about oil and gas. Because we are more than that, and we can be more than that. We can develop those parts of the world that um, make it for a more kind, generous community. Yeah, I think it goes back to that identity piece, right? Who are we yeah, yeah. if we're not if we're not making six figures as in the oil mm-hmm. patch and driving quads and you know that stereotypical Albertan yeah, yeah. view that I think does contribute a lot to the the economic uncertainty and anxiety that that a lot of people are feeling right now. Well, those are uh, those are great things for us to to be thinking about and to be working about. Um, do you have any resources? Anything that you direct people to read? Podcasts you listen to? Um, where can people um, learn more about your church? Um, you know, anything that you want to pass on to anybody who's listening uh, that might yep. be useful in this journey around kind of their own use of power and where, how they show up in community. Um, what's been an influence on you? Well, people can listen to my podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure there's links in the show notes. <laughs> it's um, makingfaithmatter.ca. It's our First Lutheran's um, uh, website. And we also have an app that you can download for uh, iPhone and Android, as well as on iTunes, where we find your podcast. Um, I listen to a lot of, um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts anymore. I make a lot of audiobooks. 
And I've been listening to uh, Richard Rohr, who's a um, Franciscan priest. He's uh, actually Oprah had him on Super Soul Sunday one day, and he just uh, came out with a book called The Universal Christ. And he talks about uh, Christ as being present in compassion and mercy and all those you know, values. And uh, I really appreciate his work and all the folks who are who are very similar to that. Like Cynthia Bourgeau is another one who's an Anglican from the United States, and she talks about a lot of the same sort of stuff. There's a strain of Christianity out there that people don't actually hear a lot, and it's one part of my tradition is that it, we focus on on values rather than conversion. Mm-hmm. Focus on creating a better world, creating a new creation, participating in what God is doing, rather than running around trying to convert souls, which has very little to do in the Bible. Thank you for the conversation. I really uh, appreciate you taking the, the time out on a Tuesday morning at 11 okay. o'clock. I'm sure you've got lots on your plate. <laughs> well, appreciate you taking the interest. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with Kevin Powell, and you can learn more about Kevin at faithmatters.ca. As a reminder, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really does help us reach a wider audience and have a bigger impact in the world. A reminder that Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Coulard, and you can learn more about what I do at www.jeffcoulard.com. That's J-E-F-F. C-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D dot com. 